All right, good evening. Everybody, if you will, turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7. Get my these trusty glasses. Going to continue tonight in uh, our study here. Um, if you remember then from last week as we pick up, excited about looking at this. We're going to start into the, the pla plagues. I don't want to mispronounce it. That's where you let that southern English come out, plagues. You know what I'm saying? But, but the plagues, we're going to start there. And we're going to look into those tonight. And we've kind of set this up. If you remember, God has sent Moses back in spite of all his objections. He's equipped him for the task. He's given him his brother, Aaron, to be his voice. And so God speaks to Moses. Moses tells Aaron. Aaron tells the people, right? And so you have God calling Moses to do something and equipping Moses, to fill, fulfill the calling that he's been given. And so he goes back, he tells the people what God has sent him to do, and the people rejoice over in chapter 5. They celebrate it, they're thankful. So Moses makes that first attempt to go in and speak to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, I do not know the Lord. I do not know who you're talking about. And in that, we kind of get introduced into the theme of this section of Exodus. God is going to make himself known. And so ultimately, he says, I do not know him. And Pharaoh responds uh, as opposed to God, the true God, who equips his people with the calling that they've been called to do. Pharaoh responds by taking away the things that God's people need. He takes away the straw in order for them to make bricks. He puts more demands on them and thereby testifying to the difference between Pharaoh and God. One is a faithful, loving father who leads his people and gives them all that they need to fulfill the calling in their life. The other is demanding and arrogant and proud and takes away the things that they need, putting them in oppression and persecution. The people get upset about this. And so those who were happy about uh, Moses coming now are upset. And it tells us in chapter 6, in verse 9, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because their spirit was broken and harsh slavery had come. So the Lord says to Moses, I'm going to send you into Pharaoh again. In other words, it looks like God's plan is failing. It looks like it's not working out right. But as you know, hopefully, when you read the scriptures, whenever it looks like that, God has it exactly where he wants it to be. Does that make sense to everybody? The moment we think the plan is failing is the moment we know God has this right where he wants it. The moment we think that there doesn't seem like any way out, how is Moses going to rally the troops, if you will, because they are broken-spirited and down and out? How is Moses and Aaron going to go into Pharaoh and handle him because he, his heart is stiffened toward God and, and he does not want any part of it and he does not listen? So now he's got this force in Pharaoh he's got to deal with. He's got these people who are broken-hearted and don't want to follow or listen to him. God has the situation right where he wants it. 
And when we see that, we have this principle, I think, that runs throughout Scripture, is that the moment, the moment it looks like there is no possible answer, there's no real solution, God has it right where he wants it. That's when he shows up. And he comes back and he tells Pharaoh, we're going to do something. We have this little break in the action we talked about last week with the genealogy proving uh, Aaron and Moses' genealogy going back to Levi and the Levitical priesthood. And now we start back in chapter 7. And in chapter 7, God is going to finally answer. We're waiting on God's response to, to Moses' statement, they won't follow me, they're not listening to me. God is going to finally answer. And we really see that answer in verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff, cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. God is saying, here's the plan. Go back to Pharaoh. Go back to Pharaoh. Now's the time. God has the situation right where he wants it. His people uh, are not following Moses. Pharaoh is not listening. God is going to make himself known. And remember, that is the theme throughout this entire section. In fact, uh, that idea of the Lord making himself known is going to be used throughout all of this. We'll see it in, in, in chapter 7. Uh, we see it several times really in chapter 7. I'm just looking, looking at a couple of them. You see it down in verse 17 of chapter 7. I believe thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Remember Pharaoh's response whenever Moses came in. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice in Israel? I do not know the Lord. And so the Lord is going to say to him over and over again, you're going to know me. You may think you don't know me. You're going to know me. I'm going to let my be known to you. And how is he going to do this? He's going to do this by these seven, or these, excuse me, these nine plagues. And I'm going to say nine because we all know there's 10, right? And we're going to add that 10th one on the end. It's a little different from the others, but we do this in this way. And so what we'll see is in verse 8 of chapter 7, down through verse 13, you have really the prelude uh, only in, I mean, you, you, some of y'all read books, don't you? Everybody ever read a book? Okay. You have the prelude, right? This is the introductory information that you need in order to understand the process by which this individual went about to write this book. Does that make sense? In other words, in the prelude, sometimes you'll get the themes of the book. You'll get his, his strategy for writing, his reasoning for doing what he did. And so what you have in verses eight through 13, you have the prelude to the plagues. You have the prelude to them. And in that prelude, you will get some themes that will run throughout each and every one of these plagues. You see a couple themes. There's four themes. First is obedience. The first one is obedience. We see it here. He says, this is what the Lord says to Moses and Aaron. When, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff, cast it before Pharaoh so that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did what? Just as the Lord commanded him. In order for God to be made known here, God is saying, Moses and Aaron, you must be obedient to me. 
God makes his name known through the obedience of his people, right? That's what he's going to do. God is going to make his name known through this obedience. And here, this obedience, the staff being cast down, signified that God is the one who is working. Not Moses and Aaron. He's, God is making himself known. He's not making Moses and Aaron known to Pharaoh. They know him. God is going to be making himself known. So the key for Moses and Aaron is that they will do what God told them to do. In fact, look at several times throughout this passage. Uh, you see it down in verse 13. Uh, Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He did not listen to them as the Lord has said. You see it over, uh, over in chapter 8. Verse 15, there may be a couple other places, but you see it there after the second plague, as the Lord has said. You see it at verse chapter 8, verse 19, as the Lord has said. You see that things are going to happen as the Lord has said. Be obedient first. Each one of these will have that obedience of Moses and Aaron in them. You see another thing, God's power is greater than Egypt's God's. God's power is greater than Egypt's gods. That's what you're going to see with this staff. And so we already saw this sign that the Lord told Moses, when you go to Pharaoh, he's like, I don't, I'm not equipped. The Lord said, throw down your staff. Y'all remember that? He said that a couple chapters before. Throw down your staff, and the staff turned to a snake. Now we come in. And he does the same thing. Take your staff before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. Throw it down. Cast it down before Pharaoh so that it may become a serpent. And Aaron cast his staff down just as the Lord commanded before Pharaoh and his servants. And it became a serpent. What we see here is that this is God's power on display. He's able to turn a staff into a serpent. He's able to do these things. And now some have argued this actually is a different word. This actually is a different word that was used in chapter 4 for serpent, right? So, so uh, same type thing in, in interpretation, but, but a different word in the Hebrew. And the word in the Hebrew this time even is used later for sea monster. So, so it's this idea that God is turning this staff into something that should not be in Pharaoh's presence, right? Only God can do this. And so ultimately, this staff is turning into this serpent, as it said here before him, testifying to the power of God. But it was a setup. What God's doing here is a setup for, for what's coming. God is not surprised by the fact that when he did this, Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers of Egypt, and they, the magicians of Egypt, cast down and did the same by secret arts. So what happens here is that Aaron cast down his staff and just as sure as he did, it turned into a serpent, as the Lord said. And then Pharaoh comes in and says, oh, y'all kidding? My people can do that too. And they cast down their staff before it and it turned into the same thing. It turned into the same thing. God's power is on display in turning this happen. But what happens here is that we also see this theme running throughout of counterfeit signs. Counterfeit signs. And these counterfeit signs, these wise men that comes in, these sorcerers, these magicians, these dark arts or secret arts, as it says, we will say that these could be any number of things. They could be illusionists. They could be magicians. They could be doing something here that would be, be the case. You know what I believe happened? I believe they had a staff and they threw it on the ground and it turned into a snake. 
And why do I believe this? I believe that when we read the scriptures, we find that Satan has power to do some things, right? He has the power to make some things happen, just as he will do later. And we'll talk about that in a minute. He has power to do this. So whatever we see, we see this demonic power on display through these dark arts of the Egyptian sorcerers or leaders. But again, it was a setup because what happens to the snake that they cast down? For each man cast down his staff, they become serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs, right? So God set them up. He knew that there was something they were going to try to respond to this with some counterfeit sign, if you will, of power that would come along. And God set them up for it because as soon as he does, Aaron's snake. Have y'all ever seen, y'all seen the movie, The Ten Commandments, right? It lasts like seven or eight hours. And, 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 and you got Charlton Heston who went from there to the planet of the apes, you know, Moses and stuff. And same looking movie. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if y'all ever noticed that, but same look. And so you have that. And I, man, they did the best they could back then. Y'all know what I'm saying? Whenever they cast down the rod and it turned into a snake, the graphics aren't that good. Y'all remember this? Good. Am I chasing something here? It's, it's real. I'm saying they tried their best to make it happen and give the sense. But could you imagine this? As all of these sorcerers come into this place, Pharaoh begins to look and say, look at what my guys can do. And Aaron's serpent staff goes and eats up and swallows every single one of them as to say, I am greater. In fact, that idea of swallowed up their staffs, we will see in a couple other places. We see it over in Exodus chapter 15. In Exodus chapter 15, I believe it's verse 12, which is in the middle of the song of Moses. Moses is singing this song, and, and I just realized that I, goodness gracious, I just realized that I talked for about 10 minutes with my glasses right down there, right there. I have become my father. I'm sorry, and I just realized that I did it. Hope none of you are offended. Um, you go through this, and Moses has his song a, a God-centered thank you song after the people had crossed the Red Sea, after his people had come safely through. And y'all remember what happened once they crossed. Pharaoh's army thought they could do the same thing. They thought they could step through here. And as soon as they did, y'all remember what happened? The sea came back in on them. The walls of water broke. And how does Moses describe it? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. This idea of being swallowed we'll see again in 1 Corinthians 15. Remember what Jesus did when he goes to the cross. When he went to the cross, he put death to death. And it says what? Death has been swallowed up in victory. It's that same language that he's using here that this is not just the snake eats the other. It's a display of the power of God to deal with his enemies as he wishes. And so God's power is on display. Even amongst the counterfeit demonic power of others, it's on display. And we'll see some of that, by the way, in some of these passages. But not only see these counterfeit signs that come, we see the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. 
Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh should have stopped right there. It would have been better for Pharaoh to say, you know what, my guys can't compete with this. It would be better for Pharaoh to say, you know what, I'm up against somebody and something that I can't control, I don't have the power over, and this is not safe for me. Y'all go ahead and go. I'm going to make the best decision for my people. But what we find is that Pharaoh's heart is stiffened toward God. And when we use that idiom of hardened heart, it's a little bit different than how we use it. I've talked about this before. It's the language of a heart being heavy or strong-willed or resolute or stubborn. And it can be seen even in the text sometimes as a positive thing or a negative thing. Sometimes it is good that we are stubborn, right? Sometimes we need to be stubborn for the truth. We don't just back down from what's true. And sometimes that this, this language is used in the text as good for being stubborn. Here it's a negative. What it's saying is, is that, that Pharaoh, to, to replace an idiom with an idiom, Pharaoh is going to be sticking to his guns. He remained resolute against God. I'm not going to believe. I'm not going to do it. I'm, I have a position here, and my position is I'm greater than all other gods that could come to me. I don't know the Lord, and I am going to remain resolute, and the people are going to stay here. In fact, remember the first time that, that Moses went to, to Pharaoh, he didn't ask for him to let the people go. He just asked for him to go into the wilderness for three days so they could worship and sacrifice. Y'all remember that? That was just a little thing. It was a test. And now he's saying, it's time to let my people go. This is the big one. You failed the first test. Now I'm coming after all of it. And Pharaoh remains resolute. He was resolute over just three days into the wilderness to, to worship and to sacrifice. He's now resolute over them leaving. And so his heart remained there. These four themes, if you will, obedience, God's power over the Egyptian gods, the counterfeit signs that they can offer, and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, that becomes the, almost the outline of every single one of these plagues. That's exactly how all of them are structured. In fact, you can see all of those themes played out in each one that comes now. This prelude kind of sets up what's coming. The prelude kind of sets up what's coming. And these plagues, just a couple things about them as we start out. First of all, the word here for plagues that has translated that way also means, and I think a better understanding for us is not just some, some pestilence that has come or some great evil that has come upon the people, but the word means blows or to strike. And so the idea here is that God is going to deliver blows to Egypt. He's going to strike them. And that language of striking is a language of judgment. And we'll see that uh, later. For example, one of my favorite passages in Exodus uh, is, is the stubbornness of the people to believe that God would not provide what they needed. And so they grumbled against God. And God said to Moses, I'll stand on the rock. You strike the rock. Same words. You see what I'm saying? You strike that rock. You judge it. And when you strike the rock, what will happen? Water comes out. And so that's a statement of judgment. And here, that's what these plagues mean. This is judgment. I want to emphasize this for all of us to understand that this is, Mo this is God through Moses and Aaron, Aaron on display 
putting on display his power over against the Egyptian gods. God is not just going, you know what will be cool? Let me give them a bunch of flies. That'll be cool. You know what would be awesome? I bet you I can turn the whole Nile to blood. I'm going to do that one. That's not what God's doing. What God is doing is he is displaying his power over against everything the Egyptians trust or believe. He's showing them your whole belief system is wrong. What you're trusting in has no power. God is on display that he is in control. And every one of these goes back to creation, if you will. He's going to use the created world to display his power. So as to say, I'm the one who spoke this thing into existence in the beginning, and it listens to every command I give it. That's what the Lord's going to say. And, and, and that's how... The Egyptians, like all these other ancient uh, cultures, set up their gods, right? I've been in other countries. I've been in places. One time I hiked over a mountain, and it, it, you know, I thought that was the coolest thing. I'm in the middle of nowhere, and I hike over a mountain, and we get to the village, only to realize if I'd have walked out the other side of the village, the road was right there. I could have dropped us off right beside it. Whatever. I thought it was cool to hike over the mountain to get there. And we hiked over, but when we got there, when we got there, we walked up on them sacrificing. They were sacrificing chickens to the gods of the mountains because they just planted their crops. And so they were making a sacrifice to the chickens. And, and you would think, sometimes when you're preaching, I tell Kevin this all the time, sometimes when you're preaching, the music can be so bad in some places. My fr- I'm going to chase this rabbit. This is a fun story. True story. Listen to this. The second time I ever preached outside of my home church, I was at some little country church in some little place in South Carolina with an impact team for North Greenville University. College at the time. I told, I told Miss Jean this the other day. And I'm getting up there, and I don't know what I'm doing. I listened to my dad preach all my life. You know, I hadn't been exposed to anything, anything else. I'm just trying to do something. I got me a little text. I got me a little outline. And I'm praying, God, help me. God, help me. You know what I'm saying? And, and so I get up there, and I'm ready. And in this little old church, they had a soloist coming up. And it was a girl, and she was a teenager. I said, okay, she can probably sing. That's good. The girl, when she got up, I kid you not, I don't mean to say this. I don't want anybody to get upset at me. The girl had three hickeys on her neck right down through here. I'm thinking, my goodness, what in the world? She walked over to the tape deck. This is the late 1900s. She pushed play to her little soundtrack. What I thought was a soundtrack. Her soundtrack was the judge singing Love Can Build a Bridge. And it wasn't a soundtrack. She was singing with Naomi and Winona right there together with them. You talk about hard to preach after. That was tough. You know what I'm saying? There's sometimes, and I told Kevin this, there's sometimes when the music's so good, I can't wait to get in there. I just hope I don't mess this up. Y'all know there's different things. When you have to preach right after somebody just sacrificed chickens to the God of the mountains, I want you to know it excited me. That was some of my best preaching I think I've ever pulled off in the middle of nowhere in some mountain. Let me tell y'all about a sacrifice that was made on your behalf. Y'all see what I'm saying? That was good stuff. And that's how these ancient cultures did their deities. 
They would use creation and they would find something. Who's the God who handles the crops? Who's the God who handles the life that we get? Who's the God who does this thing? And they offer up sacrifices to that because they're looking all over creation and they know there's something greater, right? They know there's something greater that they just suppress the truth in their unrighteousness and they replace the great God of the universe with a God of their own making and understanding. And that's what the Egyptians had done. And God said, I'm going to let y'all know who I am. I'm going to show you that what you're trusting in can't get you anything. I'm in control. He's going to strike blows against their gods. And that's what these plagues are for. That's what they're doing. He is going to dismantle their whole belief system to say, I'm the one who's in control. I'm the one who created it all. And that's what they do. And these plagues come together then. If we can see how they work, this creation. And and, and what it's going to look like to the Egyptians maybe is that creation is out of control. You see what I'm saying? Like they're gods who control the Nile. They lost control. The gods who control the crops, they lost control. The gods who control the, the, the animals, the livestock, they lost control. The god Ray, who is the sun god that they worshiped above all other gods, he lost control. That's what it's going to look like to them. But what's in reality is God is in absolute control. And those things listen to his voice. And so ultimately, that's what we'll see in these. They come, by the way, in three sets of three. I want to explain this to you because the Bible's beautiful in how it lays out. Remember, the culture that Moses is writing to is not a, is not a writing culture. It's, a, it's a, a language culture. They're passing this down by language. They're talking. So you're telling these stories oral learning, oral communication. So they would use ways to remember these stories and, and help them understand it so they could pass it on to the next. And what you see is in these sets of 10, this set, our set of uh, uh, plagues, you have nine at the front, the prelude at the beginning, the, the last plague of the death of the firstborn son at the end, and nine here in between. And they come in three sets of three. The first two of each set, if you will. So one and two, four and five, seven and eight. The first two of each of these set comes and begins with a command of God to go and do something. And then after that, and by the way, they meet Pharaoh. The first one, they meet Pharaoh down by the river. And the second one, they meet Pharaoh at his house in both on all of these sets. So they come there with a command by God, followed by a warning of what will happen if they don't, don't obey that command. And then the third one of each set, so we're talking about three, six, and nine, there's no warning, there's no command of God, there's nothing there, God just does it. God just does it. So you see the building up in this of Pharaoh's hard heart. God comes to him, uh, through Moses and says, here's what's going to happen. And if you don't follow, here's what's going to do. He meets him down by the water. Here's what it's going to do. And Pharaoh says, I'm not following. And God shows up, delivers the plague, and Pharaoh's heart is hardened toward him again. Then he goes into his house. Pharaoh, here's what's going to happen. If you don't obey, here's what's going to happen. And you're going to be judged here. Pharaoh doesn't obey. The plague comes and his heart is hardened. Finally, the third one, 
Boom, he just does it, his heart is hardened. And then you have three sets of those that come through. And so ultimately that's how you build and this is building up to a climax. And then if you look at these plagues, each one of them basically follow that same idea. Obedience, God's superior power, counterfeit offers by the sorcerers of Egypt and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And so if we can, and we'll see what time we have, we'll just kind of work through some of these. You got the first plague, water turned to blood. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. So he, he did the first prelude and, and that didn't work whenever his, his staff swallowed up all the other snakes. His heart's hardened. Let's go to the first one then. Let's turn this. He refused to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. That's where he appears to him, down by the river, down by the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand that staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far... You have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Y'all see that? Here's how you're going to know God is making himself known. Behold, with the staff that's in my hand, I'll strike the water that's in the Nile and it shall turn to blood. The fish in the Nile shall die. The Nile will stink and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in the vessels of stone. And what happens? You have the promise of here's what's going to happen, and here's what's going to happen if you don't obey. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded, obedience. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff, struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned to blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord has said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house and did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water from the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. What happens here? First of all, you have the obedience of Moses and Aaron to do what God says. They do it. They do exactly as God says. You have God's power to turn the Nile water into blood. But notice what happens. Now, now understand, the Nile was the life of Egypt. Egypt is built upon the Nile. In fact, if you look at maps even today, the only green part of Egypt is right down either side of the Nile. And as soon as you get out of that area, it turns to sand, right? And so there's nothing that you have to be in this section, this delta section to have any life that's given. So the Nile gave Egypt life. In fact, it was the Nile that made Egypt the great power that it was. The fact that it was there, this great river, and so you have this case, and the Egyptians worshipped the Nile. It was the life-giving place, the water and all of the things they needed. And what does God do? He strikes it so that it turns to blood, and it, I like how it puts it, stank. It smelt bad. So what do you know? Even when you, you have it, that, that smell and that taste go together. You know what I'm saying? It didn't even smell good to him. It was unpleasant in every way, in every understanding. God struck it. But notice what happened. It wasn't just the Nile. 
Do y'all see that? It's every vessel, it's every canal, it's everything they have. All the water of Egypt turns to blood. God is saying, I'm the one who controls life here. I'm the one who controls this. Oftentimes we, we come to these and we think that God turned the Nile to blood, but you get these plagues and it goes a lot deeper. Like when he says he turned the sun out, in the middle of the day it says they can't even see their hand in front of their face. So uh, you see the, the, the way this works. When the flies come, they're landing on Pharaoh in his own bed. You know he was protected and had screens up on the windows and stuff. They're landing on him. He can't get away from them. You can't get the flies, the frogs. They're so ubiquitous. That's a big word, but look it up. I'm using it the right way. And they're everywhere that you can't get away from them. And so it is with this. There's nowhere the Egyptians could run to get away from God's power and turn into water into blood. There's nowhere you can go. You can dig alongside the Nile to try to find it. They couldn't find it there. There's nowhere they could turn to without knowing God. God is making himself known in such a way that nobody in Egypt's going to get by without knowing him. And that's what happens here. And Moses and Aaron are obedient to him. Do as he says. Nile was the life of Egypt. There's no Egypt without the Nile. And God had shown his power. In fact, I believe Egypt had three deities connected to the Nile that, were, that they worshipped and, and, and bowed down to. While all of this happens, listen to what Pharaoh does. Hey, magicians, show them y'all can do it too. Now, I'm looking at this thinking this is the dumbest thing you've ever seen. But this is how it works, right? If you're turning all the water to blood, and that's what's happening to your stuff, and everything's turning to blood, why in the world would you cut your musicians loose to do the same thing? Why don't they turn the water from blood back to water? Wouldn't that make more sense? You're only making the problem worse. That's exactly how Satan works, by the way. The reason why I say it's counterfeit, even if it's Satan, he can only mimic the power of God. He cannot overcome it. Does that understand what I'm saying? He can't turn what God does around. He can't take what God's doing and say, I'm going to do the opposite. He can only mimic God's power. He can never overturn God's power. So when God makes a ruling, that ruling stands. Satan can come along and try to mimic it. He can come along and try to do some counterfeit piece to it, but he cannot overcome what God does. And we'll find that they try this. It works for the first three, if you will, I believe. And after a while, God's power is too much and they can't overcome it either. But that's what happens here with these counterfeit, counterfeit signs. They can only mimic it. And in each case, they actually make the situation worse than make it better. Trying to show their power, they only show they are helpless before God. They're helpless before God. The first plague comes. It doesn't work. Pharaoh's heart is hardened toward God again. Then the Lord said to Moses, first one didn't work. Go to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague you in your country with frogs, frogs, fro frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs. All the fish had died, but the frogs shall live, right? Again, God demonstrating his power over creation. 
to do what he will do. Oh, the fish died, but the frogs shall live. The Nile shall swarm with frogs. They shall come up. Listen to this, y'all. Frogs. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Anybody know what a frog is? Frogs. They shall come up into your house, into your bedroom. On, they ain't sparing nothing here, right? On your bed, into the houses of your servants, your people, into your ovens. Your kneading bowls, you're not even going to be able to make bread because of frogs. Y'all see here? That's a lot of frogs. In your kneading bowl, the frogs shall come upon you and your people and all your servants. The Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, over the pools, and make frogs come up out of the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. Covered the land of Egypt. Frogs here. You see again, obedience. God tells them what to do in verse 5 and 6. Aaron and, and Moses do it. They are obedient. God displays his superior power. So he stretches out his hands over the waters and frogs came up and covered Egypt, the land of Egypt, as verse 6 says. Covered the land of Egypt. Counterfeits are going to be offered, but we'll come back to that. Why frogs? Frogs everywhere. Notice, the Lord always says what he's going to do, and he does it. Frogs are not scary. I want y'all to know that. Some of y'all may be scared of frogs. That's insane. They're not scary. They're not going to hurt you. Frogs are not scary. Frogs are really not that creepy either. But to have them everywhere is a big deal. Egypt, by the way, had many frog deities in fact, it was recently that they had, uh, through archaeology, uncovered statues to frogs as deities and gods that they would bow down to. And why was that? The frog, for them, was a symbol of fertility. In fact, we found also ancient documents to say that it was illegal to kill frogs. Now, that puts you in a dilemma when you roll over into bed, right? That puts you in a tough spot. You've got frogs everywhere and you better not step on one or you're going to jail. It was illegal for them to even kill them because of what they represented. They represent life. You hear frogs. They are present. You know that they are there. And while frogs are there, if you have frogs, uh, the Lord says, if you love frogs and you think frogs are helping you, i tell you what I'll do. I'll give you some frogs. If you think they represent life to you, if you think they represent fertility, if you want to worship them, by all means, I'll give you all the frogs you want. I'll give them to you. God is in essence here mocking the Egyptians for their ridiculous belief that frogs can somehow help them. That frogs can somehow somehow help them produce more children, give them fertility, point them to something. We uncovered statues of frogs to bow down and worship. Ultimately, then, what does Pharaoh do again? As the frogs come and God displays his power, Pharaoh sends his magicians. Pharaoh called Moses. Where's that? Where's that? There's that. Oh, here it is, verse 7. But the magicians did the same. Now, again, how dumb is that? If you got a bunch of frogs everywhere, why in the world would you ask your guys to make more frogs? 
Because in his limited power, power it may be, Satan cannot overcome what God does. He can only mimic it. It's only a counterfeit. And so here, the magicians come, they use their demonic power to make more frogs. I find that kind of amusing. I don't know about y'all, but I find it kind of amusing. They make more frogs. And Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord. Mm -hmm. See what happens. Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I'm to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs may be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow, Moses said, be it as you say so that you may know, y'all got that? That there is no one like the Lord our God. In other words, I may do what you're asking, but I'm only going to do it on the Lord's timing so that you will know that there's no other God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps and the, and the land stank. I don't know if y'all can tell I like that word stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord said. Y'all see what happened again. This didn't take rocket science. God showed his power by killing the frogs. God displayed his power by bringing them up. God displays his power by putting them to death. God is in absolute control. This is not chaos that's going on in Egypt. The news channels didn't get that right if that's what they reported. This is not chaos. This is the power of the living God to bring life and to bring death as he sees fit to raise up frogs and to put frogs to death. But they've got to deal with the consequences so they heap their frogs in a pile and the land stank. Dealing with the consequences of this plague and this judgment of God, they will smell it. It will remain in their nostrils, in their nostrils even, to know what their God, or what God of Israel can do. But what does Pharaoh do after showing a little bit of, sorry, didn't, didn't plan on a bunch of frogs, he sees the respite and his heart's hardened. Nah, I'm not letting him go. He thinks he's survived the storm. He thinks he's gotten through with the, with, with the problem. He, it's, it's not coming again. He survived what this happens. And notice what happens in the third plague. Remember what I said, the third plague just comes about. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out the staff, strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And I can tell y'all right now, they did not have enough dryer sheets to put in their hat to keep the gnats away. They did so. The sand, the dust becomes gnats. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff, struck the dust of the earth. You see the obedience of Moses and Aaron. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not do so. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. 
The magicians knew that what they were dealing with was like nothing they had ever dealt with before. This is the power of the God of Israel, Pharaoh. You better beware. But Pharaoh's heart was stiffened and hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord has said. Even Pharaoh's reaction was not outside of God's understanding. He knew it. He knew it. And what I want us to see as we close out with these first three, we'll come back to the next. We'll try to finish all of them next time. But what I want us to see is these truths that kind of pop up to the surface, right? The truths of the fact that our God is greater. That should hearten us as his people. There, the people of Israel were looking, and what we'll find when we get to the fourth plague, what we'll find is that God starts making provisions for his people so that these plagues, these blows, these strikes do not affect them. He's going to protect them from them. And so ultimately we'll see that God who makes himself known of Israel is the God who is over and above all things. The God that we worship and serve that is found in the scriptures himself that has revealed himself and made himself known. That God does not share power with anybody. His throne is higher. His name is greater His power is more than any other thing that you can possibly imagine or know. And even though the devil may have some power, the devil is God's devil. He can only do what God allows him to do or lets him to do. That's how I, I, I remember watching, they do those old, uh, those old ESPN does those 30 for 30s, you know. And that means a, a, a documentary about sports. And I remember watching the 1980 Miami team, the Hurricanes. And I was watching that, and Jimmy Johnson was the coach. And Jimmy Johnson walked up into the team meeting the first day, and he said, here's what you can do. We got two rules. You do what I tell you to do, and you do what I allow you to do. That's it. That's the only two things you can do. What I tell you and what I allow you. In some essence, that reflects what God does. The only things that can happen is what he demands or commands and what he allows. And so for us, when we come to the scriptures, what we need to recognize is we, we should be eating this as vitamins and not taking it like Tylenol. Does that make sense to everybody? We come to this sometimes and we look to God's word when we're in the hard times, like a Tylenol. Help me get through this. But what really helps us is that we eat God's word like a vitamin preparing for the hard times. Because the hard part for me as a pastor dealing with somebody is I don't want to come into somebody who's just lost a loved one or just got told they have cancer or just have I don't want to come in there and say, well, you know, God is powerful above all other things. I come in there and say, man, I don't know what God's doing. I know he loves you, right? I know that, but I know you can trust him. I know that, but hopefully you've been eating your vitamins all along to know that he'll never leave you or forsake you and everything that happens to you is for your good. And so we, as God's people, eat this passage up like vitamins. God is in control. No matter what lie is told to us, no matter what sign or mimic or counterfeit is put in front of us, it is not greater than God. Don't lose sight of that. Eat that as a vitamin every single day. Every single day. And at the same time, know that Satan doesn't end with Pharaoh. He tried his best again. 
In fact, he's going to counterfeit and mimic one more time in a most peculiar way. And this time, he's going to go after Jesus himself. Do y'all remember? After Jesus comes up out of the water in Matthew's gospel, he goes straight into the wilderness. We'll talk about that later. It's all kind of imagery here of Israel going into the wilderness. Jesus goes into the wilderness. And Jesus, this beloved son, remember what God said to, I, I don't want to get, we only, it's 723. We got seven minutes for this. Uh, I got till 730. Y'all don't look at your watches. In fact, just to let y'all know, we only advertise the time we start. We never tell y'all when we're going in. Y'all know what I'm saying. When you go into this, when you go into, you see, what does God say to Abraham? Go get my beloved son, Israel. That's what he says. Israel is my beloved son. Go get him. Go get him and tell him I want him, I want him back. And so now Jesus steps into the waters of baptism, right? Israel had already proven they weren't going to be faithful. They'd already proven all these things. Jesus steps into the waters of baptism. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove and the skies open up and the Father says what? This is my beloved son. This is the one who's going to be faithful to me. Even in the wilderness because he comes up out of the baptism and he steps into the wilderness and he's there for how many days? 40, y'all got that. Y'all putting things together now. Y'all got this. The Israelites going to be in there for 40 years. 40 days he's in there. And what is Satan going to do? He's going to mimic the power of God. And he's going to say to Jesus, if you are truly the son of God, if you're truly the loved one, turn these stones to bread. He's left you out here. Turn these stones to bread. And what does Jesus say? What are you talking about? I may be out here without physical bread, but I'm not out here hungry. Because man does not live by bread alone, but the word of God is my sustenance. Not giving up that. He tried to mimic God and turn that counterfeit little argument into it. Jesus doesn't fall for it. Satan comes. Well, if you are truly the loved son of God, throw yourself down then. He will save you. He took him up to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And God said, oh, right? On their hands, they'll be bear you up. So he's using scripture. Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Don't come at me with these counterfeit trials as if for me to test God. Jesus did not at this time, even though he hadn't eaten for 40 days, he didn't need a Tylenol from the scripture. He had the vitamins to sustain him. Y'all see what I'm saying? I don't need to put God to the test. I know he loves me. He's told me that over and over again. He's displayed that over and over again. Satan tempts for you to fall for the fact that you might need some other sustenance than God himself. You don't need anything else. He's enough. Satan tempts you to put God to the test with his promises. Why would you need to put God to the test with his promises? Because countless times in your life, over and over and over and over again, much less the life that has been before us in his word, he has been faithful. He's been faithful. Don't need to put him to the test anymore. Satan says, well, maybe that's not enough. If you're truly the son of God, 
If you're truly this, he took him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory, and he said to him, all of these I will give you if you'll fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, for you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And the devil left. He did all he could, but he could not overcome the power of God in his word. What was the devil trying to promise Jesus? You will get all of the kingdoms. Just worship me. I'll give you everything here. Just worship me. What was the promises of God in the Old Testament for the son of man who would come? All the kingdoms would be his, right? All the nations would be his. Stick with me for one second. I got three minutes. Jesus to fulfill the plan of God to receive the inheritance of nations was going to have to do what? Go to the cross. And on the cross, he will finally, though Satan may deal him a little blow on his heel, he was going to crush Satan's head. Satan in this effort is trying to get Jesus to skip the cross. I'll give you all of this over here, these kingdoms, if you won't go to the cross. This is why whenever Jesus tells his people, I'm going to the cross, right? I'm going to suffer and die. And Peter says what? No, you're not. What does Jesus' response? Be gone, Satan. That's what Satan desires, Peter. He desires for me not to go to the cross. He tried it in the wilderness. I'll give you all the kingdoms if you will just not go to the cross. Worship me. I'll give it to you without you dying on that cross. And Jesus says, whatever. Whatever. It's only the Lord that I follow and the Lord that I serve. And when Jesus goes to the cross, he takes that heel that we've been looking at since Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and he crushes the head of this serpent that tries to mimic and give counterfeit God. Be a counterfeit God. He crushes his head and puts him to death. And the God of peace has soon crushed Satan and ended, ended that great disturber of his peace so that his people can trust his power forever. Can trust it forever. You see, Satan tries to mimic and be a counterfeit again only to have it shown that he is a phony God. Don't fall for his lies. But worship the one true and living God that has been on display and made himself known through his power, through creation, through all of this. There is nothing lacking in evidence that you need. Don't be like Pharaoh and stiffen yourself to the very truth of God's word. See it, know it, follow, be obedient. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. It is good. Help us, God as we continue this week to follow you, that we take your word as vitamins for life, that give us the nourishment we need as we are sustained by you, O oh Lord. All of this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank y'all. We'll see you Sunday. Sunday.